Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. Today features the conclusion of our discussion of Ed Ward's book, Michael Bloomfield, The Rise and Fall of an American Guitar Hero. Bob Dylan just listed the book as one of his favorites in a web post. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Ed and I talk about the fall of Michael Bloomfield, his dream band Electric Flag and why it became a nightmare for him, the difficulties Al Cooper had in birthing their massively successful Super Session collaborations, and Bloomfield's drift away from the spotlight and final years. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Let It Roll podcast. This is Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined again by Ed Ward for part two of our conversation about his biography of Michael Bloomfield, The Rise and Fall of an American Guitar Hero. Ed, last week we talked about the rise. Today we're going to talk about the fall, although we will talk about Bloomfield assembling his dream band and putting out his most popular and successful records. So it's not all decline, but the narrative arc is definitely on the downslide. Kind of a kind of a strange uh, career arc uh, from the Butterfield Band on, certainly. And what do you think? I mean, what would you ascribe the strangeness? Well, it was partially his ambivalence about being a star. I mean, there was no point in history where it was easier to be exposed as a rock star as somebody that people should come out and see and and you could tour and make a lot of money and um, he was really ambivalent about that later when i interviewed him he had thought this through somewhat and had a, a pretty interesting insight as far as i'm concerned he said i'm not a beloved entertainer a beloved entertainer is somebody who has to get out there and work. They just, they aren't complete unless they're doing it. Elton John is a beloved entertainer. Sophie Tucker, I mean, she lost a leg and pretty soon she was back on stage in Vegas. I, I couldn't do that. And I thought, I thought that was a really interesting approach to, to, you know, because I was still a young kid and I thought, well, why wouldn't anybody want to be 
you know, a guitar star, you know, look, look at Eric Clapton. But then, of course, we see what happened to Eric Clapton. And not, not a lot of that was pretty either. Yeah, I mean, Clapton had his own bouts with heroin. And we'll talk about Bloomfield's heroin. But first, let's talk about his dream band. He had a vision for an American music band that would play everything from Stax to Soul to Spectre and, to, and the Kansas City Jump Blues that, that he loved so much. What's, what, how did he do that? What happened? He, quit, he quits Paul Butterfield. And then how does he put together the electric flag? Well, I, he had this idea for an American music band, and he, he had a lot of, you know, a lot of people that um, he, he knew could be in it. And so I think it was uh, him and Gravenite started um, auditioning people. And, uh, of course, everybody wanted to work with this guy who was like the greatest guitar player in America. So, sure. Um, the, the big difficulty was um, getting um, Buddy Miles away from Wilson Pickett. Pickett was, well, he always had a temper, and it wasn't helped by these white guys coming in and, and taking this great big teenage drummer from him. But Buddy saw an opportunity. He wanted to sing, and he wanted to write material. So um, he, um, he went with them, and uh, at first things were pretty easy. And, you know, assembling a horn section, horn players weren't working much in those days unless they were jazz guys or studio guys. So yeah, it was pretty easy to get that whole thing together. And yet from your account, the horn section is where the biggest trouble with the electric flag started. Several people right. identified Marcus Doubleday, the trumpet player, as a junkie. Right. And Michael was pretty much okay with that because, you know, he'd been around the blues scene and, and he'd seen what the reality for especially minority musicians was. And uh, he probably figured, you know, well, if Ray Charles can be a junkie and, and get away with it, then probably some of these guys can too. But he, he didn't look far enough into the future. Not that we should condemn him for that, but... He didn't really see what what could be coming, and what could be coming came. Yeah, I mean, when you quote the road manager as saying that, you know, he was hired because Albert Grossman was essentially afraid of the horn section of Electric Flag, and that he wouldn't even stay in the same hotel with those cats. So, right. you know, and then multiple busts ensue. They get busted, and Barry Goldberg quits the band who had, who had uh, along with Bloomfield and Gravenides had put the band together, you know, quits, and that sort of starts the personnel train collapsing. But do, would you ascribe that solely to heroin, or was were there other toxic elements in the mix that blew, blew well, apart? Well, for one thing, flag? The, they 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 never really toured. It was it was a really big band, and you know, it's easy enough to tour a trio, um, but that also has its logistical problems and now you get this gigantic band going from low paying date to low paying date they didn't have a hit record um the record company released grooving is easy um which was a perfectly fine tune but it didn't catch on i mean it didn't chart at all um it, it was 
they had gotten off to a bad start. They, they had a disastrous first performance at Newport. Um, Michael was just incredibly At Newport or Monterey? I'm you, sorry, Monterey, the Monterey Pop Festival. Um, and Michael was, was incredibly angry that it, he felt that it was premature and that they, they shouldn't go on. But it was just a bad start. And from the bad start, they had a bad career, short. Career. Yeah, although one of the weird things about their Monterey performance is that the crowd reaction was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, and that's one of the things that flipped Bloomfield out. Yeah, well, he realized, as Jimi Hendrix would soon come to realize, that all these people wanted was somebody on a stage making noise. I, I don't think that much of that response was particularly educated. It was just, yay, a band, yay. And there was a lot of that in those days, you know. These, these kids are high, and, and they're, there's all these people playing for them, and some of them are, are really good, and some of them are not. Um, but it it didn't really matter. You're out there in the sunshine in Monterey with your friends, smoking a joint. Sure. And and Bloomfield just couldn't handle it. But before we've we've gotten ahead of ourselves a tiny bit because I wanted to talk about the record label decision. Like Bloomfield retained Albert Grossman, who had managed both Bob Dylan and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and Grossman tended to sign his artists to Columbia Records. Uh, Butterfield was on Electra, but you know, Dylan was on Columbia, Janis Joplin and the, and the Big Brother would be on Columbia. What, you know, and you tell a tale of how Atlantic and Columbia were the two record companies that were most interested. And from Jerry Wexler's quote, and Wexler, you know, is the villain of so many tales uh, in the music world. But in this account, at least according to Wexler, it sounds like Grossman manipulated Bloomfield away from Atlantic by accusing Atlantic of ripping off their black artists. Right. And I think that's, um, that's a very credible story. Um, I think they probably would have been better on Atlantic because Jerry would probably have been able to uh, get the situation under control. Um, although, of course, uh, Atlantic was changing a great deal in those days. But th this could have been Wexler's next great project. Um, but Albert was such a such a control freak. I, I've been reading a lot about um, just the whole scene in, in um, Woodstock and Bearsville in those days, and and uh, he was a bit of a megalomaniac. Not even a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you love your manager because he's willing to fist fight uh, in your defense with Alan Lomax there's a trade-off that he's going to be fist fighting with other people or, or lording it over people and dominating. Uh, exactly. And, yeah. And, and Columbia, you know, uh, I mean, big brother and the holding company obviously was massively successful in Columbia, but it was the death knell for other San Francisco bands, including one of the few that Bloomfield respected Moby grape and right. You know, and 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 the and the producer was a mismatch. Counts had I think he'd done Peter Paul and Mary and Gordon Lightfoot, which in no way prepares you to try to deal with something that had never been done, which was combining a horn section with a really loud, aggressive, cutting edge rock and roll guitar player. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, I don't. I don't really think any um, record company would have been 
perfect because the, the band wasn't perfect. There was a lack of thinking things out, I believe, with the electric flag. Um, it was they should have had another single on deck to go once Groovin' is Easy failed. A lot of people put out a, a first single and then a second one, which would be the one that would hit. Yeah, The Doors famously. Yeah, the, a pattern all throughout the 60s. I've been seeing it as I've been cruising through um, Billboard for the next edition of for the next volume of the rock and roll history. Um, and and record labels were okay with that. They, it wasn't, you know, you make it on your first single or we drop you. Things were a lot easier. And there was a lot less, um, a lot fewer acts signed too. And, you know, one of the things you talk about and, and is their decision to spend several weeks, maybe even a couple of months, recording a soundtrack for this uh, psychedelic movie, The Trip. How much do you feel like that got them off course? I think that that's a, a valid a valid question. Uh, they, they, they were just, you know, here, here was this new band that had just formed, and that there was a specific agenda, which was very song-driven, you know, because if you're going to do all these different kinds of music, that's you're, you're entering into a tradition that, that depends on song. Um, and to go to L.A., just because you got offered a whole bunch of money and record what is essentially a blues jam, I mean, the record is almost unlistenable. Um, but there's a couple of uh, instances in the movie where it sort of fits. Where, where it's the background to some sort of weird vision of what a psychedelic experience was all about. It worked okay in the film, and there's there's the one track um, on the album where there's some decent getting together. But you know, jamming is is like in the '60s, in the late '60s and early '70s, it was a real trap. Because, you know, you go, you go and hang out with some people and play, but it, it gets turned into a record. So you're sort of spontaneous searching around for a groove becomes locked in wax. And that was a really bad idea. Um, there were so many jam records made, you know, um, and Michael was on another one, which was the uh, Grape Jam uh disc that was included with the Moby Grape's second album. I, yeah. I mean that album makes the trip sound like just incredible because yeah, the Moby Grape jam thing, um a massive disaster. Bloomfield plays piano on it rather than I mean the idea of Jerry Miller and Bloomfield playing are two of the best guitarists in San Francisco that's intriguing. Add Al Cooper, oh boy, but when Bloomfield plays piano it's just kinda like what is the point of that? <laughs> Yeah, they're, you know, what's the point? Well, if you're just hanging out with friends, you know, somebody calls you up and goes, hey, come on down to our rehearsal space and let's jam. You know, maybe we can come up with something. You can be have a guest shot on the new record. You know, that's cool. Um, recording it and making people buy it, even if it is quote unquote free with the new album, um, that's a disaster. I mean, you know, listen to some of this stuff. Uh, uh, jamming with Edward, the thing that the Stones put out during with the Ryan recording. Cooter. Yeah, but they didn't yeah, release with that. 
for decades. I mean, that that came out. No, no, not decades. No, that that came out pretty much simultaneously with the Exile on Main Street. Jamie, oh well, but they recorded it during Becker's Banquet, so it was much later. Are you sure oh, that okay. came out with with uh, yes. Exile? Yeah, I, yeah well, that is that is an odd choice, but I, I would assume that had to do with them leaving uh, Decca and Decca emptying the vaults. That's not. Well, that's no, around... no, not at all, not at all. It, it came out on Rolling Stones Records. Wow. Well, yeah, that is terrible. You also think of of the third disc, on All Things Must Pass, where George Harrison and friends jam pointlessly for oh. two songs, you know, and mar a, a, a masterpiece double album. And turn it to an expensive box set with a just dead wood. But Bloomfield's next move after he he gives up on the flag, which he does even before their album comes out. Um, right. He was, you know, all of a sudden he realized what he'd done and that he'd have to tour. And touring, you know, was was a difficult thing for the for the flag, um, just because there were so many of them. But also, Michael had his his problem with insomnia on tour and he suddenly realized that was going to happen and he's self-medicating with heroin as well well he was was trying all kinds of things i mean he 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 had a doctor you know prescribing him sleeping tablets the barbiturate style judy garland style stuff right exactly it wasn't a very uh sophisticated pharmacopoeia back in those days yeah, and that's brutal. So he quits the electric flag and and basically sabotages any chance of the album being successful by doing that. And then he's pulled into a, another project by Al Cooper, with whom he'd been so successful working with Bob Dylan on Highway 61. And, and this is a jam album, the Super Session. And yet it's the most successful commercial project Bloomfield ever worked on. And I would argue... It's actually a good record. How did that happen? Well, I mean, jam records, although they're atrocious, they were selling. So Cooper probably figured we can get the very best guy and the level of his jamming would be higher than, you know, grape jam. And he was right. Yeah. He was able... he and and Bloomfield had an actual musical connection that was valuable to both of them. They inspired each other. And so what you hear on, on Michael's side of, of the record is actually very good work. Because the upside of jamming is you're constantly challenged to come up with new ideas or the next time you're going through the, the chorus, you... you play it a little differently and and it's an inspired thought you know, if you're a great musician you can do that and and if you read you know cooper's description in his autobiography of of his thinking behind the album he admits to a certain touch of cynicism because he'd just been kicked out of his own dream band blood sweat and tears um and you know had a big contract with columbia and was trying to figure out what to do next but he's also I, i'm sure columbia was trying to figure out what to do with him next <laughs> Yes, invest money. But Cooper also has this vision of, I mean, because nobody knows where rock and roll is going to go at this point. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of directions going, and Cooper looks back to, well, what's the last 
really great American musical movement. And it's jazz. And in jazz, it's like, get the best players together, cut a session. And so this idea that rock music might become an improvisational art form and might become an interpretive art form where you cover other people's songs rather than write in your own, nobody knew that that wasn't going to be the case in 1968. Right. And so, you know, and and to me it's fascinating part of the fascination of the supersession album is this question of why did rock and roll not become jazz i mean rock and jazz obviously got very intertwined in the 70s with miles davis and weather report and john mclaughlin and the mahavishnu orchestra etc cetera, etc cetera. and and some pretty interesting things were done but that's not where rock and roll went that's not where music went it followed the beatles dylan self-contained write your own songs well, the model. record companies ha had an investment in that um as far as writing your own songs that they they were uh always invested in the publishing so they made money that way um as as far as uh other sources of income uh, a hit single was still possible you know the 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 pop and soft rock was was really the biggest moneymaker but it was also possible that that some of these some of these harder rock bands would would score a hit single get up into the top 10 and and a lot of them did so that was where the record company wanted to uh wanted to focus its energy they, they weren't into people covering other people's music or or um nice instrumental music that that didn't seem to be what the audience wanted also you know the fm rock stations were on the rise and they had their own view of what a hit was and um it was about original music yeah and 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 yet supersession hits at the perfect time and goes gold you know but that's part of bloomfield's problem with it but we haven't even talked about the recording of the album when bloomfield right. rocks out after one day yeah he he went back to his hotel couldn't sleep went had ah, to hell with it jumped on a plane went home cooper wakes up the next day and and there's a note on uh, michael's door at the hotel sorry you know i, I went home and Cooper is panicking, you know, because the record company has heard about this project and they put money into it, although not much because it wasn't an expensive thing. It was just jamming, you know, you record it and that's it. Um, so he had to look around and, and uh, find another guitar player, Pronto. Which and he, he was, yeah, he was lucky he was in L.A. and Stephen Stills was there. But right. And Stills and Cooper, you know, I go back and forth. I was talking to a friend of mine that who was, who's a professional guitar player here in Austin and he was saying you know that he thought Bloomfield realized he couldn't follow up on the implications of what he had done and that the sort of splashdown effect of Stephen Stills and Al Cooper jamming on you know things like it takes a lot to laugh it takes a train to cry and and uh Donovan's Season of the Witch and other things added a pop element that really put the album over the top that's uh, that's a good argument. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. But the other thing was, I believe if Michael had stayed another day, that that Cooper could have um, gotten more great work out of him. Or you know maybe not on the second day, but on the third day. 
Yeah, and and Cooper, I guess because the album was so successful, goes back again to work with Bloomfield and books some high profile shows at the Fillmore with a different rhythm section, but they you know, to be recorded for a double album, a double live album, The Live Adventures of Bloomfield and Cooper. And once again, Bloomfield shows up and is brilliant for half the scheduled time. Well, and that he would do because this is a quick drive into the city, you know, it's like 30 minutes, including the time to park. So he, he was a lot more amenable to that. I thought it was the film East and he was, he was awake for five days straight or something. That's what they say on the record anyway, that he collapsed uh, okay. and, and was hospitalized because um, he just couldn't sleep on the road. Well, and, that would make sense. That would make sense. It makes less sense that he would fly to New York to recreate a project he wasn't really into. But um, there was probably money coming in from. Because I remember, was it Cooper or Bloomfield who said they walked into the record store and just saw copies of copy of, Yeah, of, of Super Session flying across the counters, and he went, "Uh oh." <laughs> <laughs> and that response always, you know. For a careerist like Al Cooper, who's not ashamed to admit that that's what he was, I mean, he was a talented man, but also had his eye on the bottom line. I mean, uh, it's interesting that he realized that there were going to be repercussions of that album being more successful than, I mean, wildly successful, beyond their wildest dreams. Right. That wasn't the idea. The idea was just to, you know, help him and Michael with their problems with Columbia. Yeah, and I think I think also an element of how do I get something out of Bloomfield? I mean, I, I feel like Cooper really right. felt that, that there was a risk of Bloomfield's talents going to waste. And, and what's the easiest thing we can most low key, easiest thing we can get him into and, and create good work. And, you know, I think the live adventures is quite enjoyable. The rhythm section is pretty weak, but you know, the version of the 59th street Briggs bridge song, which Paul Simon added background vocals uh, to in the studio later, that's pretty powerful stuff. And I, I really feel like Deep Purple was listening closely to this combination of loud, screamingly guitar and heavy organ. And that the sound, it wasn't just a one-off or a dead end. I mean, this is something that had a huge influence on rock and roll and people were paying attention. But once again, Bloomfield Flakes after one day. And Cooper, again, scores, you know, he gets Elvin Bishop, but he also gets Carlos Santana to play live. And the Santana portions of the album are, you know, perfect. It's, it's a pretty good record for a jam record. I, I, it's been so long. I may not have made it through both album, both records on that set, you know, because I, my interest was very definitely elsewhere back then. Yeah. I have heard the edits that, um, Cooper did on the box set and, you know, they're okay for jamming, but you know, this is another time and place. Yeah, so it's, it's really hard for me to comment on that. And also, and I I've think never listened to Deep Purple at all. <laughs> well, some people would say you missed missed out there. Although, again, I can certainly see not being into Deep Purple. They they start a whole strange strand of rock and roll uh, and prog rock and and leads into the whole elves and witches school of heavy metal <laughs> that is uh pretty silly but a lot of kids have had a lot of fun with um anyway back to bloomfield and cooper this album i mean you know they get norman rockwell to paint their portrait on the cover so there's 
you know, and Bloomfield sits down for that. And I mean, that's over the top rock star shit right there. Oh, yeah. But everybody was doing it. So why not? Yeah, it's just funny that Bloomfield is so tortured by this stuff, and yet he keeps going back for bites from the gold, you know, the poisoned apple or whatever. It, it, it's... What's, what's he going to do? I mean, he, he doesn't, he hasn't come into a routine up there in his house in Mill Valley, and and he probably felt that he really, well, he did owe money to uh, Columbia, and uh, I don't know, he was probably still being managed by Grossman, so there was a lot of pressure, and he thought, well, you know, I, I should really do this. All they're asking me to do is play guitar. I don't have to write songs. I don't have to deal with other people except for Cooper, who I already know. So why not? Yeah, it was easy enough, and it and it produced the you know the most popular, successful work of his career. And yet, it becomes this albatross around his neck. You know, you tell the story in the book. You know, ten years later, he's touring Italy and trying to do kind of a Ry Cooter thing that's low key blues and doing the music he really loves, and yet. You know, he goes all the way to Italy and fans are still screaming, you know, for Albert Shuffle and stuff off the Super Session. So it, right. it dogged him for the rest of his life. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and um, he never really took responsibility for having created this monster. And he never um, came up with an acceptable replacement for it, which, even more importantly. So he, you know, he had ma- he had made this thing, and and it was gonna follow him around forever unless he replaced it with something else, which he didn't. Yeah, and and he and Nick Gravenides do a pair of albums for Columbia: Gravenides, My Labors, and and a live album, uh, Live at the Fillmore with Bloomfield. That's got some great work. I mean, Blues on the West Side has just got an incredible guitar solo, and and My Labors, if you like Gravenides, uh, and he's a good songwriter. Um, yeah, you know, my, is, is one of my favorite people in this whole story. He, he's a, a really deeply soulful man, and he's he's moral, and, and he's got just integrity out the wazoo. And he is a gifted songwriter. He wrote great songs for Janis Joplin and many others, and and the Paul Butterfield Blues songs, blues band signature song, Born in Chicago. Uh, I'd, right. I'd, I'd vote for that for Gravenetti's greatest composition, but. Be that as may, those albums were pretty clearly contract fillers from Bloomfield's perspective and, and a way to get out yeah. of the rock star machinery. And, and there was that other one, It's Not Killing Me. Which is not good. <laughs> well, that's just awful. But, you know, he owed them albums, so he gave them albums. And what are they going to do? I mean, here's here's a piece of product that you can put the name of Michael Bloomfield on and somebody's going to buy it because they're all hoping that, you know, the life-changing guitar solo is going to be on this record. It's not, but um, hey, it's not Columbia's fault. Yeah, and, and, and I really wonder if there wasn't an element of Bloomfield putting his career to sleep with that album. Well, he really didn't want to be a rock star anymore. So, yeah, I think so time that stuff came out he he was he was falling into the you know hanging out at home mode pretty heavily yeah and 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 your account of his lifestyle in mill valley it's not as dire as some rock star falls i mean 
partly because of his income from his record royalties, but also because of his trust fund, which every few months he would right. get uh, a fairly sizable check uh, from his family, family trust, allowed him to live, you know, basically a middle class lifestyle of reading novels all day, watching TV and playing his guitar in the evening if he wanted to and he you know his ex-wife was living with him and and he had friends living with him so he had kind of he was sort of the king of a court and it doesn't sound that bad there there's this guy named dan mccloskey i knew him um he was a friend of john morthland's um and um, he was you know this, this kind of nebbishy very earnest uh guy who was uh, a stereo equipment salesman he, he went out to see Michael one time and uh, they got to talking. He says, you know, I've, I've got a guitar, but man, I wish I could learn how to play guitar in the way you do, just because it, it seems to be more, more like what I want to do. I'm a big blues fan. I got lots of records at home. And, um, and Michael said, well, you know, come on up to the house. I mean, you live here in Oakland, come on over to Mill Valley. You know, we can we can just like jam in the living room. And Danny goes, well, I, he says, come on over. So he did. And Michael starts playing rhythm. He says, go ahead, play lead. And Danny's like, no, I don't. He says, do it, come on. So he did. And he was terrible. And Michael then says, okay, you play rhythm. Let me show you something. And he did, and, and he sort of took the ideas that Danny had, had played and turned them into Michael Bloomfield music. He says, now it's your turn. And Danny had been looking at his fingers and he went, yeah, okay, I see. And so he executed something that was a lot closer to what Michael had done. And then it just got fluid. And uh, at the end, I don't know, so Michael had to do something else or something. He said, well, I'm going to throw you out, but I want you to come back. Cause that was a whole lot of fun. And Danny was like, wow, just imagine that. This guy, this, this major rock star enjoyed playing with me. So he did come back a couple more times. And eventually he did a, a long interview with him on the radio. And uh, yeah, that was the kind of guy Michael was. I, I ran into him. <laughs> what I did was... A, I ran into him at the record store, uh, Village Music, the world's greatest record store, which was in downtown Mill Valley. Um, we both reached for the same album at the same time, the uh, Barbara Lynn album on ADCO. And uh, I said, man, I've been looking for that for a long time. And Bluefield said, yeah, well, so have I. And you got to give this to me because I'm Mike Bluefield. You're not. That's <laughs> no argument. I saw it first. Hey, I saw it first. So it was like, okay, but, and I, I yelled over to John Goddard, the uh, owner of the record store. I said, John, the next one of these that comes in, it's mine. Set it aside. And he was <laughs> laughing his head off. His Michael was there a lot. And uh, so he said, okay. And I, I said, you know, hey, I, I work for Cream Magazine. And I'd like to do an interview with you. And he said, sure, come on up to the house. That was all the formalities I needed. There was no manager involved well there was a manager at that point toby byron but um he wasn't uh he, he wasn't a kind of um albert grossman <laughs> he, yeah he, michael didn't feel he had to pass this by but you you want to do an interview with me sure come on up so i did we had a wonderful afternoon and you captured 
some really a really poignant statement from him. I want to read this. I, I I flagged it because, you know, reading about his life and how, you know, comparing it with somebody like Iggy Pop or Wayne Kramer, who were heroin rock and roll casualties around the same time, and just living in abject squalor and misery. Bloomfield setup doesn't sound so bad, but then you read this statement he gave you, and he says, um, I would like to put out a record that had the sounds on it, those sounds in the air, and I will. Oh, if I could only do just one that would make me as proud as the Beatles probably were with Sgt. Pepper, or Jimi Hendrix was with Axis, or I was with the first Butterfield album, and he fades away, and you say, he thought I didn't hear the pain in his voice that I missed his brushing tears from his eyes. He was wrong. And that's just heartbreaking. Yeah. That was, you know, it was like, I know I can do this, but I can't. There's no advice on earth that you could give this man that would make him perk up and go, oh, great idea. No. He was he was really locked into the demons. And uh, at that point, I didn't see a way out. And there, as it turned out, there wouldn't be a way out. He made some more good records, and he made one particularly good one. If you love these blues, play them as you please, which was an instructional he did for Guitar Player Magazine. That is an album I've I've enjoyed, you know, for thirty years because my big brother was a subscriber to Guitar Player Magazine, and we had the cassette around the house. And there's something just really sweet and genuine about it. And you really, what comes through is his love for American music. And his love for teaching right. about American music. Right. Which is what he did with Danny. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, to me, it's just so heartbreaking that a, a person like this with these gifts who wants to share them in an unassuming way, he did not want to get rich and famous from this. He did not want, right. you know, not a beloved performer. Yeah. But that there was no channel. I think, I think had he lived longer, that there would have been channels for, for that kind yeah, of expression. Especially since he was basically clean towards the end of his life. With one and, uh, tragic exception well, there at the end. We don't know what happened that night. We don't even know where it happened. He because didn't know anybody in that neighborhood. Yeah, his body was found in his Mercury under a freeway overpass. Yeah. And he was full of meth and cocaine, which were not his drugs of choice. Man, somebody with a bad problem not sleeping is not going to um, go after those drugs. I'm sorry. Yeah, those those were not drugs he needed. <laughs> he needed right. downers because he was already I, – I, I read a quote from somebody else. Uh, I think it was Mark Naflin who said, you know, Michael's brain was on fire. And that's what made his right. guitar playing so great. But that's he could what the what interviewing him was like, you know, it was like just trying to keep up with him. His ideas were constantly coming into his head and they, they weren't even musical ideas. I, God help me if I tried to play guitar with him. <laughs> yeah. And so you really feel for somebody who's got this talent and this mind that he just can't capture and channel. And right. You know, spends. I mean, he wasn't a complete burnout, though. I mean, he did produce a lot of records and he did tour and perform throughout the seventies, but it was very low key. Uh, with and he played a lot in the Bay Area. I mean, if you, there's one album that's never. It wasn't referenced for the box set, and um, it, it is just one of his best. 
live at the old Waldorf, which was a, a club that um, I guess by the time Michael played and, and recorded this, it was under the thumb of Bill Graham. Um, but it was it was a really nice little club. And, and this was a document of what you could see at the New Orleans house in Berkeley or, or the lion's share up in, in San Anselmo, you know, when Michael Bloomfield and friends had a gig. Um, and it is high level, basic blues, really a wonderful record. And, and that was fairly late in his career. Well, I wonder why that was never reissued. I, I don't know. I think because his late period discography, there's just so much of it and it's a mess, you know, uh, it's, right. it's like, it's like trying to read Trollope also, or something. It also could be that Toby Byron owns that record and um, he and Al Cooper, to put it mildly, they don't get along. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's too bad, but it does seem pretty clear that Bloomfield still had it from at least the accounts of his last performance with Bob Dylan which you tell the story of Bob Dylan and Maria Moldar climbing in Bloomfield's window one night. Right. Yeah, to get him out to uh, to play at Dylan's show at the the, the theater. The, I can't remember the name of the theater on Market Street there, but Graham also had that for a while. And you know, the next night Bloomfield shows up at the theater in his slippers. <laughs> <laughs> right but with this guitar yeah and plays a great set but dylan had to had to introduce him to yeah. the audience cause because people have... that's how bad they'd gotten nobody there knew who this weird looking guy with all the hair was but once they heard him play they realized oh yeah <laughs> you know yeah he, and, and... he was ready to do it yeah and, and and one incident you don't talk about but but according to another interview i read online recently with Bloomfield, Dylan had actually approached him about playing on uh, uh, the Blood on the Tracks album, and Bloomfield just couldn't connect with him. He felt like Dylan was too much of a rock star, and there was too much of a wall, and he didn't understand the new music any more than he had understood the stuff on Highway 61. So, you know... He also probably afraid of being asked to be in Dylan's tour band, because he didn't have one at that point. Yep. And, and so, you know, it's another, you know, what if, but it, it's when you, when you said that your response to Bloomfield saying, you know, I want to produce another great album, but I can't was my, my first thought was what if somebody great, you know, one of his peers or somebody even slightly better than him, like Dylan or Cooper or Clapton had showed up and said, Hey man, I really need you on this. But as it turns out, Dylan tried and, and it just couldn't come together. And, and, you know, so I mean, I think, you know, summing up, though, it's easy for us who never made any great music to tut-tut about Bloomfield's missed opportunities or, or, you know, bemoan the albums he didn't make. But I think the more important thing is to treasure what he did give us, which is a pretty respectable body of work. And the other artists that he inspired with that work are endless. I mean, the guy basically invented rock guitar. Yeah, yeah, out of blues. But he also, like adding other metals to an alloy to make the finished product stronger, he he gave it something that people could carry on without being 
you know, like these endless British blues bands that were happening in the early 70s. You know, that was just imitation. Um, Bloomfield gave electric guitarists a gift of a new way of approaching music and uh, approaching rock guitar and taking it out of the blues, but based in the blues, which is very, very important. Yeah. And And the smart ones do that. Yeah. And without Bloomfield, no Eric Clapton, no Peter Green, no Dwayne Allman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, the, the I whole... think maybe a Dwayne Allman, but, but n- none of the others. Yeah, well, we could argue that endlessly. But um, anyway, it's been fun talking about Michael Bloomfield with you, Ed, and look forward to talking about the second volume of History of Rock and Roll when it comes out. And yeah. that's and, it for this um... episode. Thanks for listening. Next week, Ed and I will return to the prehistory of rock and roll with a special episode on country music in the 1920s and 30s. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. 